Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, May 28th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about what we've been up to in the water cooler. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined today on the podcast by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And writers Y. Tran Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hi. All right, guys. So we are down two people, as you may have noticed from our roster introduction there. We don't have Peter or Brad on the podcast today, but so I, I suspect this will be a, a shorter water cooler episode than normal. But frankly, the news out there is uh, it's pretty much a wasteland of not podcast worthy discussion topics, to be honest with you guys. And uh, it's, you know, we, we're just coming out of Memorial Day weekend. So I figured there's enough, we've been doing enough to uh, justify a short water cooler. So um, has, did anybody do anything interesting over Memorial Day? Or do we, did we all just basically like relax and take it easy? Anybody do anything of note? My wife's oh. out of out of town. So I'm two weeks as a bachelor doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> what does that translate into for you, Jacob? Just like video games or what? Video games, comic books, watching terrible movies, which I'll get to momentarily, and planning RPG sessions, which I'll get to momentarily because <laughs> holy crap, I did nothing this weekend. Okay, what about you, HC? I'm back at my parents' house in DC and I've been sitting by their pool for the past couple of days. All right, all right, that's good. Chris, I saw on your Instagram that you put up. Uh, what what is that like? Some sort of tent out in, in the back of your house? It's like a it's like a canopy, and I got this like netting to put on it, and it was nice. I sat there and I I drank too much, and now today I feel like I'm dying. So it probably wasn't the <laughs> idea. <laughs> My wife and I did something similar on Friday night. Not the the canopy thing, but the drinking until we feel like we're dying thing. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm finally recovering from that. Um, all right, so I think that pretty much covers the what we've been doing section. A, a lot of nothing, it sounds like, but a, a glorious nothing. You know, a holiday nothing. Uh, let's get into what we've been reading. Jacob, what have you been reading over the break? Uh, less of reading and more of acquiring because God knows there's more books to be owned than read ever. Um, but after years of not owning it and putting off buying it until I went out of print and deciding I'd never find it, I got a copy of uh, Tashin's James Bond Archives hardcover. It's a massive, massive hardcover coffee table book that's full of photographs and you know set design and just all kinds of stuff from all you know decades worth of James Bond movies. And it's original retail prices like was very expensive i think it was like two hundred dollars i found it at a used bookstore for with a discount uh eighty dollars so cha-ching i now have another coffee table book to add to my collection of film coffee table books does anybody else have any of the tash and stuff like i have the kubrick one as well they put out and they're all amazing 
I have I have the Kubrick one. It's great. Yeah. I don't have any. I uh, I saw I was in Beverly Hills for a press event not too long ago and saw that there was a Tashin store, like an entire store devoted to just that stuff. So I wandered in there because I showed up like 30 minutes early to this press event. I had a few minutes to kill and I wandered in there and there's so much cool stuff um, that that brand covers. And it seems like everything they do is like a full on deep dive you know, with like tons of like rare photos and all of that kind of stuff. So that, I mean, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that Bond archives is going to uh, keep you busy for a while, Jacob. Yeah, I'm a sucker for anything that is extremely large and a textured cover and is full of rare photos. Sign me up. I have this book called uh, Bond by Design, the art of the James Bond films, which sounds like it's sort of a, it's also a big hardcover thing, like a coffee table style book. I think uh, DK Publishing released that uh, several years ago. Um, but that one has a lot of like Ken Adams uh, production design, like cons- you know conceptual sketches and stuff like that. So I wonder if there's like a lot of crossover there um, or if that's, uh, if that's a separate thing. You don't happen to have that book also, do you, Jacob? I don't have that one, but I do know that uh, Peter recently bought the Tashin Star Wars hardcover coffee book. And he said that there's a whole lot of new stuff in there that wasn't any of the many, many, many other making of Star Wars books out there. So my guess is that even if there is some crossover, the Tashin one is, if you're a Bond fan, perhaps still worth hunting down, even though the outer print prices are a little outrageous in some corners of the internet. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like they're pretty much like the uh, the go-to source, the definitive uh, destination for, place, for uh, properties and stuff like that. Um, Chris, what have you been reading? Uh, I read the new book by Thomas Harris. He's the guy who wrote uh, Science of the Lambs and, you know, all, all that. He's the guy who created Hannibal Lecter, basically. And he hasn't written a book in a few years. And this new book isn't a, a Hannibal Lecter book, uh, but uh, it's really good. It's it's the ultimate beach read. It's called Carrie Mora, and you can probably blow through it in a weekend like I did, just sitting around reading it. Um, it's about uh, this this housemaid who works in this house in Miami that was once owned by Pablo Escobar, the the famous uh, drug lord. And there's uh, millions and millions of dollars of gold buried beneath the house. And this this main character gets caught in the middle of all these people who are trying to basically get into the house and dig up the gold. And there's this one character that it it seems like Thomas Harris is trying to create like the new Hannibal Lecter because he's just uh, incredibly vile and evil. And he, he, he like harvests people's organs and he has this liquid cremator that he built himself that he puts people in to reduce them into liquid that he, he pours their remains down the toilet. It's like cartoonishly evil, but I, I really, it's, it's such an easy read. It's, it's written. You can tell he wrote it hoping they'll make it a movie because it reads basically like a screenplay. And, but I really liked it. And like I said, this is like, the ultimate book that if you you know you're going to the beach this summer and you want to just sit on the beach and read something that's entertaining and not too uh, deep, this is this is perfect for that. I've read a couple of Thomas Harris books and I I can't be above reproach because I read and enjoy like you know beach read thrillers by Lee Child, but I've always found Thomas Harris's writing to be just never as good as his ideas. Like I find like I'm kind of like struggle with his prose because I feel it's just just sometimes bad. Did you have that case here, or or is it, or would you manage to fly past it? Uh, I didn't. I didn't have that case here at all. I do know what you're saying. Um, I do think Silence of the Lambs is written very well, but I do agree that a lot of his other books, the prose isn't that great. But the prose here, it's not. You know, there's not like a single line that you're gonna be like, wow, this is some great writing. But I wouldn't call it bad writing either. It's very easy to digest. Chris, in the movie version of it that you watched in your mind. Who directed it? Oh, God, I don't know. A part of me is just automatically pictured Ridley Scott because just because he directed the Hannibal movie. And this reminded me a lot of not Hannibal the book, but Hannibal the movie. And that it just goes like really over the top with just like violence and weirdness. And if anyone has seen Ridley Scott's Hannibal, that's really what this book is like, where it's just almost like I said, like cartoonishly violent at times where you know, people's heads like explode. And so it's just, it's really <laughs> ridiculous. But again, I liked it. It's, it's not going to win any awards, but it, it, it's a good book. And, and what is it called again, Chris? It's called Carrie Mora. Carrie Mora. Okay. So 
over the weekend, all three of us, Chris, HT, and me, we watched the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience. And uh, this is described as a visual poem. It's directed by uh, Mike Diva and Akiva Schaefer, and it's the Lonely Island's new Netflix movie. Uh, they dropped it as sort of a surprise release on midnight. I think it was maybe Thursday, last Thursday night or something. So it's been a little bit since we've seen it, but uh, this is the first time on the water cooler that we've had a chance to talk about this thing. Um, HT, what did you make of this? It was, um, it was so, like, I, I love that they went with the most obscure angle ever. They basically, um, it's Andy Samberg and uh, Akiva Schaefer as Jose Conseco and Mark McGuire, who are two uh, baseball players who are famous for taking steroids. And this is something I actually did not know going in. I know nothing about sports at all. But my roommate, who I watched it with, was like, oh, weren't they known for like taking steroids? And, like, and then immediately, right off the bat, in the first song, they talk about their steroid use. I'm like, oh, I guess that is true. But it's just an obscure angle. And then they lean into it so completely and so ridiculously that you just can't help but be taken in by this entire experience. It's so just capital R ridiculous is uh, the only way that I can describe this. And uh, they, they really go for it. And um, it's, 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 I think it's just like the fact that they go so hard into this comedy. Um, and it's like, you know, when you have a joke that like lasts too long, that it stops being funny and then it starts being funny again. That's what, the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience is like. Yeah, I think that, I mean, for something that defies explanation, I think that's a pretty good uh, breakdown of it. And this thing is 30 minutes long, so it it's basically just like an extended Lonely Island music video or like a collection of music videos. Um, Chris, what, did, what was your read on all this? Uh, yeah, I pretty much agree with what HT said. Um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled it's only a half hour because if this were longer, it would start to get really tedious, really fast, but making it only a half hour makes it this like perfect encapsulation of just weirdness. And I don't know, I, I, I really liked it. I don't know if I'll like ever watch it again, but I, and I don't even know if I could say I like, I laughed and it really even it's one of those things where I'm watching that this and I'm like, man, this is really funny, but I'm not actually laughing at it. If I don't even know how to like explain what that is, but it's it's really funny, but it's not funny in a normal way. I don't I don't want to keep saying it's weird because that's like a like it's a like anti comedy in a way. Yeah, it's just so strange, and it's not like really about anything like even though it's yes it's about you know the bash brother it's it doesn't like follow a sensical plot at all it's just stuff that's happening and i loved it but i don't really know i don't know how you even like begin to like, explain what the like if you didn't know like who the lonely island was and what their style of comedy was and you introduce someone to this i don't know if they would like it i feel like they'd be like really confused and like angry like what am i watching why are you making me watch this i don't understand yeah it's um it's it's sort of a i mean it is a strange watch you know you're you're sitting there and it's like the movie i guess ostensibly is supposed to be sort of like a riff on beyonce's lemonade like the visual album that or the the visual experience i guess that she created to go along with that album and at times there are moments where it, it feels like a direct riff on that like they're they're certainly like you know paying homage to that and then there are times where i'm like this feels like a little weird like like almost like they're taking the the lemonade of it all like a little bit too far but then it goes back into that weird specificity of like the uh of just back into like bash brothers um like minutia to a point where I, I just I came away with this really wondering like what the point of it was and what they are trying to say with it like you're saying Chris like you didn't really feel like it was about anything like is it about these guys uh using Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire as like um proxies for their own exploration of what it means to be famous in 2019 or is it just like nothing it's just they thought this idea was funny and they're the lonely island about nothing yeah i I think the latter is right yeah (laughs) it reminds me a lot of um when i saw uh swiss army man and for half of the film, I'm like, oh, I guess this is kind of a, talking about um, society and the clutter of of living of 
of life and how we need to rid ourselves of the entire um, prospect of, of, of that societal pressure, but then it ended up just being a big fart joke. So I feel like that's kind of what the case is for the unauthorized Bash Brothers experience. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So Chris, you already said, but HT, would you recommend this to people? What do you think? I would. I would, especially if you're a Lonely Island fan and are expecting this from them. Like Chris said, if you don't know anything about the Lonely Island, then this wouldn't be for you. But this is just the exact brand of of a weird, uh, absurd comedy that they're known for, but just like dialed up to 100. Yeah. And keep your eyes out for some pretty uh, amusing cameos in there as well if you decide to check this out. I, I think ultimately I would recommend this as well, especially just because it's 30 minutes or because it's just 30 minutes long. It's not like you're really asking anybody to make a huge commitment. And you sort of know within the first, I don't know, three songs whether this thing is going to be for you because it's it's essentially the same kind of thing all the way through. Although there are some more uh, ludicrous songs and visuals than others as the thing progresses and sort of hits its, its bizarro peak near the end. But um, all right. So let's move on to uh, what else have we been watching? Uh, Chris and HT, both of you watched Fleabag. Tell me about that. You want to go first, HT? Sure. Um, I want to go into the reason why I watched Fleabag, which is a little embarrassing, but um, I'm going to own up to it. And I did it for the thirst, guys. <laughs> so The hot priest? Yes, it was for the hot priest. And I'm very predictable in that sense. But... The show is much more than just a hot priest played by Andrew Scott, who is an actor I never found myself attracted to before. And yet, he is incredibly, devastatingly charming in this series. So Fleabag is um, a TV series uh, created and starring Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is best known for perhaps American audiences for writing Killing Eve and also starring in uh, Star Wars Rogue One. Solo. No, Solo. Yeah. Sorry. Yes. Um, and this is a um, comedy series based off of her one-woman play of the same name, Fleabag. And um, it kind of takes that concept of her just talking to the audience about her trials and tribulations in modern-day London and um, turns this into a fourth-wall-breaking series about a woman who um, is kind of spiraling and is always kind of permanently on the edge Um after the death of her best friend. And uh, she, you know, acts out by uh, engaging in lots of like meaningless sex and uh, coping in very self-destructive ways. But it's um, it's very funny, it's very poignant, and it's an incredibly searing character drama that goes into um, these great emotional depths that I didn't expect it to. Uh, especially in the latter half of season one and then in season two, which I honestly think is a perfect tele- uh, perfect season of television. Season two honestly broke my heart. It took me through a um, an array of emotions that um, it's incredibly incredible how well and how um, how just like well written this show is in terms of like the way it depicts like this emotional nuance and this um, romance between Fleabag and the aforementioned hot priest. (laughs) Um, And I feel like just by talking about it, it doesn't quite um, encapsulate how um, nuanced the show is. It's, uh, I think there's actually really, if you can check on Twitter, there's many more people who talk about it in much more, um, articulate way than me, Lulu Wang, who uh, directed The Farewell, had this really great tweet talking about how uh, Fleabag is great moment-to-moment writing. And um, it is able to capture that specifically in a way that many other TV shows have rarely done before. And um, it's it's just, it's very good. And uh, I do want to recommend, I've been reading a lot of pieces after this because I've been thinking nonstop about Fleabag after watching it, and one of my favorite pieces I wrote, I read, was um, this piece on Vulture called uh, "Fleabag Breaks the Fourth Wall and Then Breaks Your Heart," and it goes really well into how that confessional fourth wall breaking device is uh, used in a really effective way to sort of bring the audience in 
and make us sort of uh, participants in this character's self-destructive spiral, but also sort of her friends in a way. And we have that relationship with her just as much as she has relationships with everyone else in this series. I'm going long. Basically, I just say, I want to say that I love this show. <laughs> everyone is perfectly cast in it. Olivia Coleman is hilarious as uh, Fleabag's godmother and Phoebe Wallerbridge is just pitch perfect in this series. Chris, I assumed you watched this for the hot priest as well. I did. I had to get some of that hot priest action. Um, <laughs> no, I, I watched this because people will not shut up about it on Twitter. And I was like, fine, I will finally watch Fleabag. Um, I, I didn't love the first season right away. Like I did with um, Killing Eve, which is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's other show. Like that, that show, the minute it started, I was like, oh, I'm in love with the show. And Fleabag, it took me a little while to warm up to it. Not that it was bad. I just wasn't really connecting with it um, until uh, there's episode four of the first season, because there's this one character has this, this monologue about what he wants to do with his life. And, he, he has this, uh, he just goes off on this long, long monologue, but it's so wonderfully delivered. And the things he's saying, they're really simple in theory, but the the context of them and, and the weight he gives the lines, like there's this one part where he's talking about like things he wants to do. And he, he's saying like, I want to come home one day and I want to empty the dishwasher and put cups in the cupboard. And the next day I want to watch my wife drink from them. And that's like such this simple thing that just it, it like really like floored me though just how simple it is but how weighted it is in the in emotion and what he's he's trying to convey and at that point i was like oh, all right now i see why everyone likes this show and uh season two is is great from the get-go so i would say like if you're like me and you start season one and you're you're not quite sure if this is for you stick with it just to get to season two because season two is great from from beginning to end all right. Awesome. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I've seen everybody talk about the show recently. It seems like the show has sort of hit like a, a, a cultural permeation that it didn't really have in the first season. Um, I mean, I remember people talking about it, but it seems like season two has just like put people into a fever pitch about this. So I think I'm finally going to, especially after hearing you guys talk about it, finally uh, sit down and watch this thing sometime soon. Um, Chris, HT, and I also watched Booksmart, and uh, Jacob, I know you had already seen this at South by Southwest, but um, guys, I love this movie. I, I thought it was almost perfect all the way through, and for a coming-of-age sort of high school comedy like this, that's very rare for me. Like, there are even parts in Superbad and, and you know, the most acclaimed, uh, uh, what's the one by... Um, Oh God, I'm I'm blanking on oh, Lady Bird. Uh, no, well yes, Lady Bird as well. But uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is the one I was thinking of. There, there are. It seems like every movie in this particular subgenre, there is at least one character or uh, subplot or diversion from where the main characters are trying to ultimately go in the story that I'm sort of not crazy about. Booksmart, I think, is the first of these types of movies where I loved not only the the story and the uh, chemistry between the lead actors, which is uh, Beanie Feldstein and uh, Caitlin Deaver, but also the, the every single diversion that they took, I found to be just delightful. <laughs> like I, I, there was not a single moment in this movie where I was like, okay, all right, let's get back to the main plot of this thing because I'm more interested than in, in that than I am in seeing these characters interact in this world. It just felt, everything felt so natural, so perfect. And just, um, I mean, I, I, I hesitate to to just heap praise on top of a movie like this over and over again without really bringing up anything that I saw as a flaw, but I, I feel like this movie kind of deserves that. I really didn't think that... I guess when my wife and I walked out of the theater, she was talking about how she thought it didn't really do much um, much new with this subgenre. Like, there is a... There's like a drug, a drug trip sequence, and there's... You know, it sort of checks the boxes in a way of... Uh, things that you would expect to see in a movie of this type. But for me, I think, I guess maybe I was just going in with slightly, di slightly different expectations. I was sort of expecting it to be a typical um, coming-of-age uh, story like this. And for me, the the joy is seeing the, the specifics of the characters and their interactions just swapped out, going through the same motions that you sort of know and are familiar with in this genre. But man, I just love this movie. Um, Chris, what did you think about it? 
Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I actually am not a big fan of coming of age movies. And I felt like a real asshole a few years ago because I was like the one person who didn't love Lady Bird. Uh, I, I really love Greta Gerwig. I love Frances Ha, but I didn't really like Lady Bird. And everyone was just like, it's the best movie of the year. And I watched it. And I was like, what the hell am I missing? Why why do I not love this movie like everyone else? Oh, that's the but, other thing, Chris, is because you like historically don't really like high school movies because you try to avoid that because it reminds you of a bad high school experience, right? Yes. And I got to say, like, if I had this high school experience, I'd, I'd feel a lot differently because this is a it's a nice movie and it has such a a really good like heart to it like even when it has to go to mean places it does so with this unusual amount of empathy that a lot of other movies in this genre don't bother with and what i really loved about this movie is that every character uh you know not only do i love every character in the movie which like ben i i don't often have when i watch a comedy but every character gets like a fair shake. Like even characters who, who get set up to seem like they're, they're jerks. Like you, you learn more about them by the end of the movie. And it's done with this really empathetic, uh, touching human way that I, that really caught me off guard. And it's also just funny as hell. Um, I, you know, I was just laughing my ass off almost from beginning to end. Um, I, I, you know, everyone in this movie is great, but I especially want to single out Billy Lord who, uh, you know, I, I've never watched, I've never watched Scream Queens and I gave up on American Horror Story a long time ago. And so the only thing I was familiar with her with was the Star Wars movies where she, I don't think she even has like lines in those movies. She just stands in the background. So I had no idea really what she could do. And she just blew me away that she is so goddamn funny in this movie from, she just steals every scene she's in. And uh, I really hope this is like a breakout moment for her. And I hope people start actually putting her in better roles because she she's incredible in this. Yeah, she was a lot of fun. I should also say really quickly, because I, I don't want to uh, mischaracterize my wife's reaction to this movie. And I wonder if she might listen to this and be like, what the hell are you doing? Uh, after we talked, after we watched the movie, she said that she loved it. She thought it was the difference between. Uh, a single run home run, which she thought it was, and a grand slam, which I thought it was. So I don't, I don't want to mischaracterize her uh, her assessment of the film. Uh, HD, what did you think about Booksmart? Uh, I loved Booksmart. I basically agree with everything that you guys said. Um, I am kind of uh, already primed to love coming-of-age films. They're one of my favorite genres of movies. And I was excited to just, like, see what this film um, if it would live up to the hype, because it's just been so buzzed about since uh, it since South by. And I loved every moment of it. Um, I will say, like I mem- with movies that take place in one night, I'm also cautious about whether I will be annoyed by many by any of the detours that it takes. But like you said, Ben, it's just like every every detour, every plot point is just such a joy to watch. And it's so funny and so um, just sharp and well like written in terms of the comedy and the plot and uh i i absolutely love the characterization too i remember i was reading some of the um criticism for this film and some people were saying that the one the big flaw that they have is that there isn't really any conflict or rather there's no real um source like that kind of meanness that you see in high school and reality. But I don't have issue with that. I think that this is the epitome of, you know, the nice core movement that we see in movies like Paddington 2, for example. Everything, it doesn't have to have conflict as long as it's done well. And I like that you are able to um, go deeper into each of the characters in this movie and find that, you know, they are all struggling and they are all have some sort of thing that you can empathize and sympathize with. And um, I think that is both I think it's true to high school, but more true to what I want high school to be. Mm-hmm. And like Chris is saying, I wish my high school experience was as cool as this, because as I was watching this, I was like, man, I have never gone to a party like this before. <laughs> the only high school parties I went to were messes so um but it was it was sweet and i did recognize a lot of the characters um in this movie in 
people in my own real life experience. So I found that true to uh, to an extent to um, what I've experienced in life as well. So um, I love this. I think Olivia Wilde just makes a, such a stellar uh, debut with this film. And I loved uh, Caitlin Dever and or Dever. Yeah, yes, I think it's Dever. And, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and Beanie Feldstein, they're both excellent. And yeah, I, I'm just astonished how great the supporting cast is. Billy Lord, especially, I laughed out loud at every appearance that she made, and she's just uh, on another level of comedy and character um, acting here. I loved it. So, um, ah, yeah, book smart, great <laughs> it, film. It is great. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, in addition to uh, not seeing Book Smart again, but I will this week because that movie is really great, and they're not underselling it. Uh, I stayed in my house and watched terrible garbage things, often for 15 minutes before hitting stop and watch something else. <laughs> but the things I uh, set all the way through, because this is what uh, your wife leaving you for a vacation with her and her sister for two weeks does to you, is I watched uh, 1984's Red Dawn, written directed by John Milius. And, um, hi guys, I want to talk about Red Dawn for a second. Uh, John Milius is best known for writing Apocalypse Now and for writing the famous... Uh, speech that Quint delivers in Jaws, among other classic films and not-so-classic films. And Milius himself was a character. He was regularly armed, uh, never uh, never never served in the military, but was obsessed with the military. Um, just a Hollywood conservative back in the 60s and 70s when that was, you know, the not-thing to be, but he still hung out with all the cool Hollywood directors. Very strange, very angry guy. Hates communists, hates Russians, and uses all the energy in Red Dawn, a movie that um, is problematic in 2019, to say the least. And if you ask me what film haunts me from my childhood, there's a short list of them. One of them is Red Dawn, which opens with Soviet paratroopers landing in small-town America and machine-gunning a high school teacher to death before shooting a bunch of students and then all the survivors escaping to the woods to mount a resistance against the Soviet invaders. And the strange thing about Red Dawn is that Milius is a genuinely talented director. He stages action well. He doesn't make action exciting as much as he makes it brutal. But at the same time, there's an inherent like doomed romance to these high school students uh, living a guerrilla uh, resistance out in the woods and steadily collecting weapons and becoming terrorists against the new Soviet state and fighting this, you know, war uh, of subversion and stealth and bombings and dying one by one it is inherently exciting and it's extremely well staged and it helps you not forget but make you understand why this movie has a regard amongst certain people to this day even though it is a movie made by a hollywood director when the cold war is only a few years away from ending like there's still the threat of you know nuclear annihilation at all turns but we're only a few years away from the Berlin Wall come down. We're only a few years away from, you know, the world entering a decade of, like, unprecedented prosperity in the 90s with dissolution of the Soviet Union and America and Russia, like, forming new ground. And yet only a few years before this, John Milius is making a movie about how America teenagers must stand alone against the forces of the Soviet Union, who are the most evil people imaginable, who get slaughtered in great numbers. And... Uh, there's no humanity to the, to the Soviets here. There are just these monsters who, who exist to be obliterated. And yet, and yet, and yet, the movie is so much fun and is so incredibly offensive and so politically incorrect, and I love it to death. Who else loves Red Dawn? Wolverines, guys. Wolverines, right? <laughs> I have never seen Red Dawn. Uh, I have seen Red Dawn. I wouldn't say I love it. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it for having every young actor from the eighties in it. And uh, it's, it's a little long. I I think it's 17 hours long the last time I watched it, (laughs) but uh, I I do appreciate it for it's, you know, unabashed propaganda that John Milius loved to just, you know, embrace. Um, Yeah. (laughs) That's where I would put it. I saw this movie probably 15 years ago and haven't even really given it a second thought outside of like, some of the trivia about it being what the first PG-13 movie officially is that right? 
Yeah, it was the first one named PG-13 after uh, Temple of Doom and Gremlins started the creation of it. This is the first right. one to actually get that rating. Right, yeah. So I haven't really, like, sat down and, like, engaged with Red Dawn in a meaningful way in, in over a decade. But I imagine that would be a very, very bizarre experience in 2019, uh, especially with everything that's going on in the world right yeah. now. But I've been watching Chernobyl as well, which is this extremely nuanced, sensitive portrayal of life in the Soviet Union in the 80s, where they bend over backwards to, like, refute all the american cliches about the soviet union about how hey these may have been you know our, our enemy on a political global scale but they were still people and on a day-to-day existence they were as frustrated by life as we were they had issues with the government like we had issues with our own they protested certain things they agreed with certain things and it's such a nuanced betrayal of a different culture that's so rarely seen in in american cinema at the turnaround and watch red dawn where the only thing I can tell you about the Soviet Union after that movie is they shoot high school teachers in the face. That's all I can tell you about Soviet space on that movie. <laughs> all right, so there you have it. Chernobyl, the anti-Red Dawn. Uh, <laughs> Jacob, what else have you been watching? Oh, my goodness. Um, a bad movie that I watched from beginning to end because I'm an awful, horrible pat- sack of human shit is uh, Ron Howard's Angels and Demons, oh. which just hit Netflix along with The Da Vinci Code. And me, like every single American with uh, too much time to kill and a couple bucks, read The Da Vinci Code back in the day. I was in high school at the time. And even then I realized, this is a bad book that I can't put down. So, but I never read uh, Angels and Demons, the first uh, Robert Langdon uh, book, even though it was turned into a sequel uh, to The Da Vinci Code movie. And this is a very bad movie. And it is hilarious in how mundanely bad it is. Like, it's not even like a Geostorm situation where I can, like, rant and rave about how delightful each like beautiful delicious tasty sweet bad decision is it is just so below middle brow bullshit on every level and everybody's phoning it in so hard that eventually it wrapped back around to being like memorably terrible it is just the trashiest of trash like disguised as being something remotely prestigious like ron howard brings nothing in this movie it's trying to farm out of action trying to farm action out of action scenes don't actually seem to exist or reason to exist uh, has a strangely gratuitous opening shot of Tom uh, Hanks swimming shirtless for a very long time. And I love Tom Hanks, but there's no reason for the camera to be lingering on his Tom Hanks body for that long. <laughs> and it's kind That's of really where they, funny. <laughs> they can't film in Vatican City. So there's all these awkward shots where they've digitally inserted characters in the digital recreations of famous Vatican City churches and locations. And they, oh, those shots have not aged well. It is, oh man, uh, the, the plot involves antimatter being stolen from the CERN facility, then used as part of a plot by the Illuminati to uh, to destroy Vatican City in a bomb while they are assassinating four archbishops, or sorry, four um, high-ranking members of the church, whatever name they'd be under. And it's this convoluted plot to the point where the CERN research facility has an FAQ page on their official website called Angels and Demons, where they refute everything said about <laughs> antimatter in this book and movie. That is so hilarious. So Angels and Demons is terrible, and I, you should not watch it under oh, any circumstance. Man, wow. Yeah, I read every one of Dan Brown's books like right after The Da Vinci Code came out because I was young-ish at the time and just was like, I don't know, I, I, I think I recognized that they were not great, but I also couldn't put it down. And then by the time I, I finished his, uh, what is that? Bibliography, I guess is what, what is it called? When, when a writer has written, uh, when you, when you read through an entire, a writer's entire body of work, is there a specific, a more specific name for that? Um, Bibliography is accurate. Okay. All right. Yeah. Whenever, when I finished with all of this stuff, I realized that he just tells the same story over and over again with the same sort of plot twists. Like in, I, I think four of his books like the the dramatic reveal at the end is almost exactly the same as it is in you know the other three so uh anyway yeah it's um it's uh, dan brown is uh maybe not america's most treasured author even though he is arguably one of the most popular with with that book but uh man. i read the wikipedia page for his most recent book origin and it had to be howling then i was howling <laughs> with laughter over uh, the origin wikipedia description yeah i skipped angels and demons the movie uh i read the book but I, I skipped the movie and it sounds like i made the right decision there but um jacob what else have you been watching uh, I finally finished The Handmaid's Tale Season 2, and I actually like where the season ends. I just feel like this is a situation where Season 1 of, uh, ends where the book ends, putting the characters on a very specific path. Um, and then 
season two, I think they realized early on, oh, this is where it should end because we have a really great season three idea. How do we get to that season three idea? Let's spend 13 hours telling about eight episodes of story. And I'm glad I stuck with it. I'm excited for season three. Bradley Whitford, who joins the the, uh, the cast very late in season two, uh, is a really fascinating addition. I can't wait to see what he does as a regular in season three. And there's some really powerful moments between Elizabeth Moss and other characters, um, especially Yvonne Stravinsky's character. Uh, they all go through such fascinating changes. And I just feel like this should have been an eight-episode season. There's no no reason for it to be 13 episodes, especially when every episode in the middle of the season is, oh, misery, 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 status quo, status quo, status quo, misery, misery. The season only sings when it's challenging the status quo, introducing new characters, finding new corners to explore this really nightmare world. And I wish it had gotten there faster. I wish Hulu had realized we should cut five hours out of this. I mean, so many shows are excelling at eight episodes. I mean, look at Barry uh, this season, which is like using every minute of its eight episodes to be perfect in half our episodes. Whereas Handmaid's Tale, this feels like it just had way too little to say in too many hours last season. But hey, season three looks like it is what I... Season three looks like what they wanted to do um, at the end of season one, but couldn't get there without justifying it. Mm -hmm. So I'll be back. But speaking of season three, HT. Yeah, you've yeah. you've seen it. Uh, all of season three. Is that right? Um, the first six episodes are what is available to critics for um, for screeners, and I've watched them. I cannot yet say what I think about them, but my review will be up on SlashFilm.com tomorrow, and you can find out what I have to say about it. Uh -huh. And um, yes, that's all I can say for now. An enticing and, tease. All right. Yes. <laughs> uh, what else have you been watching, HD? I also watched Aladdin, which I kind of, I saw uh, with my AMC A-list because this is an AMC A-list type of movie. And um, I will say, it's not as terrible as I thought it would be. But it's also not a good movie. <laughs> um, let's see. Where to begin? Uh, this is an aggressively mediocre film in which Guy Ritchie, uh, when he is rehashing the parts of uh, the Aladdin animated film, which are meant to appeal to our nostalgic instincts, it feels very tired and lethargic and awkward. But when he gets to do his own thing and uh, basically remake Hitch with Will Smith as a as a genie with a top knot. That's when the film soars. Um, so uh, I will say I did like some of the changes that they made with this film, especially with Jasmine's um, arc. Um, something that in the original animated film they kind of made some gestures towards, mm -hmm. but never quite did. Like in the beginning of the animated film, film you may remember she says, "I am not a prize to be won," and then she ends up a prize to be won. But in this one, there is a much more um, sort of, I guess, feminist progressive turn, which makes more sense for her character versus the one that you see in Beauty and the Beast, which I still hate. So um, I will say I liked Aladdin better than the Beauty and the Beast live action remake, which I think is absolutely no, maybe I have terrible is too strong a word. Bad. No, it is not. It is a terrible film, yes. HD. You can, you're allowed to say it. I gave you permission. Okay. It's terrible. I hate it. Aladdin, I hate less, but I still think is the um, embodiment of everything bad about the Disney live action films and how they become this like uh, lifeless um, less interesting remake of these animated films and take all of the magic and, out of what made those films appealing in the first place. Um, it does make some uh, movements towards trying to remedy the Orientalism of the first film. I won't say the first Aladdin is a great movie by any means, but um, it had and has many problems in terms of its depiction of Middle Eastern and South Asian characters, which it just kind of blends together there's a whole rant to be made about the original Aladdin, but um, it does make some sort of uh, um, moves towards trying to remedy that. It's not entirely great. The, it, I feel like it would have been better if there was a, uh, a South Asian or Indian director behind this film, especially with the dance sequences, which are terribly sluggish and, ter and sad. So, um, I yeah, it's 
basically is what I'm saying. It's it's okay. What did you think about uh, Mina Masood and Naomi Scott? They have good chemistry. Uh, I especially like Naomi Scott. She is uh, she adds a lot to the character, and she does her best with the basic. Uh, what was the other guy's name? Um, the new song, basically. Oh, uh, um, Speechless. Uh, Alan Menken. Yeah, speechless. And, yeah. Yeah. And the uh, Pasek and Paul, yes, Paul's new yeah. song, uh, which doesn't really fit with the rest of the songs. It's kind of out of place. And she, but she does kill it with that, um, with her rendition of it. Um, and she's really charming and very beautiful. Mina Masood, I had my mixed feelings with. I think that he does his best with some really awkwardly done sequences, especially the musical sequences. But he has like the right amount of charm and sort of like devil may care. Um, charisma that works and I think his and Naomi Scott's chemistry really are like what sell this new remake mm-hmm. and his chemistry too with Will Smith is great like when they do basically the, the Hitch remake uh, in which he's Kevin uh, Kevin James character that's when it's really fun um, but yeah I the stars are good um, Hot Jafar is great I can't remember the the actor and I'm very sorry for diminishing him to <laughs> uh, two two very reductive words, but uh, he's great and um, yeah I mean I have my issues with this I could go into a long rant about it but I'm just gonna say it's okay. All right. Uh, okay. So what have I been watching? I watched uh, the entirety of the first season of Pen Fifteen, which is a Hulu show that was created by Maya Erskine and Anna Conkle. Uh, or they're two of the co-creators. They're the stars of the show. This is actually produced by, or executive produced by, the Lonely Island guys as well. Um, this is, uh, it's a show where they, those two actresses who are, I think, like in their early 30s in real life, play versions of themselves as 13-year-olds in the year 2000, which is sort of, when, I mean, they're so they're, they're, it's a high school show. So it reminded me a little bit of Booksmart in the way that the, the lead actresses have that sort of... Um, a best friend relationship where they can tell each other anything and it's it, you know it's sort of a common uh, depiction or, or it's not a common depiction that's what that's what makes this show really great it, it's a common idea but uh it's not often you don't often get this level of um of specificity and and uh genuine like honesty within these performances and i i feel like this is very true to life for a lot of people i mean i obviously did not grow up as a teenage girl but i feel like uh even beyond my experiences i was just able to watch a show as uh just a form of packaged entertainment that i i feel like um you know is really heartfelt and very funny and uh and relatable even though i couldn't relate to you know the idea of like getting your period for the first time and stuff like that it's it's one of those um really really uh I, I yeah specific is the word that i just keep coming back to in my mind where i think um you know with the the style of clothing and the music and um the, everything about the the way that these characters interact is very like um mired in this time and place which uh i did live through that time and place so those sort of cultural signposts are um are, are amusing in that respect has anybody else seen pen 15 no, but I have seen the rom-com Plus One, uh, which stars uh, lead Maya Erskine and is written by two Pen15 writers, oh. or directed by two Pen15 writers. Yeah, so what did you think about that? Uh, plus One? Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I saw it at Tribeca. I had a brief sort of reaction to it back when I did my Tribeca reaction. Um, it was one of my favorites of uh, the festival. It's this really funny, raunchy, um, sort of modern-day update of When Harry Met Sally about two college buddies who strike up a pact to become each other's wingmen at several weddings throughout the season and uh, end up, you know, falling in love. It's very... Um, it's just really fun and enjoyable and very uh, smartly written. I feel like if you like Pen15, you will like Plus One. So that's my plug for Plus One. I also was quoted in the trailer just to, nice. to put it out there. But um, That sounds I like another... Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say that sounds like another one of those stories that is like familiar um, in terms of like the beats that it hits, but is, mm-hmm. is uh, worth watching because of the chemistry of the leads. And, you know, that sounds very similar to Pen15 in that way. Oh, for sure. I want to check out Pen15 now because I really enjoyed Plus One. And uh, I want to support these uh, these great creatives who are doing something different. 
Yeah, so Pen15 is on Hulu. Um, I also had a chance to see an early screening of Rocketman, which I think comes out in the U.S. Uh, this Friday. This is the Elton John biopic that stars Taron Egerton as Elton John. Uh, it is directed by Dexter Fletcher, which is a strange coincidence because he was the guy who was called in to direct uh, or to take over directing a Bohemian Rhapsody last year after Brian Singer was... Uh, booted from that project or left it, depending on who you believe. Um, I, I think Rocketman is, uh, it, weirdly, I mean, because we were just talking about the idea of familiar structures and the chemistry and uh, specificity within those structures that that sort of, um, that seems like the theme of this entire episode of this podcast with Booksmart and Pen15 and uh, Plus One. But this movie, is it does the same thing. You know, it's a musical biopic and it, it has the same sort of rise and fall trajectory. It, it really made me want to go back and rewatch um, Walk Hard, which I have not seen since the theaters. Um, but I know that that's like the touchstone movie that everybody always brings up because these music biopics always hit those same beats over and over again. Um, this one does that same thing, but those fantasy elements that you've heard so much about, probably if you've been paying attention to this movie at all, are really what separates it. That and Edgerton's performance as Elton John, which he brings this really, really, I mean, he, you know, he sounds great. He performs all the music live, uh, or, or I guess he should, uh, he sings all the music. I think probably uh, most of it was recorded in a studio. I don't think they did like the Les Mis uh, treatment where they, you know, recorded the audio live on the set on the day. Um but uh, there's a lot of like song and dance numbers and the music is great. And, um, you know, as somebody who's just like familiar, familiar with Elton John's uh, biggest hits, but not necessarily like I've never done a deep dive on his life or anything. I found it to be a uh, familiar, uh, familiar story. But the um, the charisma of Taron Edgerton and his stage presence is, is really fantastic. Um, Jamie Bell is in this movie as well, playing like the guy who writes all of his songs. And those two have an interesting relationship. Uh, Richard Madden from Game of Thrones shows up as uh, Elton John's manager and um, lover, and that is a, a fascinating sort of a relationship to watch for, for a little bit. Bryce Dallas Howard plays his uh, Elton John's mom, which I found to be a very um, distracting casting choice because she's doing a British accent the whole time, and it just doesn't... I mean, it's not a terrible British accent, but it's just like, why? You couldn't have found a British actress for this? I don't know. It seemed like like she was cast as like a favor or like uh, Dexter Fletcher just loves working with her or something like that. I don't even know if they've worked together before, but it just, it felt like maybe the, the movie's biggest um, like most out of place decision was, was casting uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, but the fantasy sequences are, um, are really uh, pretty spectacular to watch as one in the troubadour, which is like um, Elton John's first major performance in the U S and um, I, I won't give away what happens in case people have been like avoiding the trailers or anything, but it's, it's a uh, pretty spectacular. I think um, the movie is ultimately worth recommending, even though it does fall into a lot of those familiar narrative tropes um, just because of those things. I said the, the chemistry and the, um, the style of it, um, Anyway, yeah, that's Rocket Man. It comes out this week, so check that I, out. I, I want to say one thing. Um, I think it's really funny that it, Game of Thrones has ended, but uh, we have uh, one Game of Thrones link in Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody, and it's Rob Stark turning into Littlefinger because they play the same character. Uh oh, really? I didn't know yeah. that I, I, because I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody. I didn't realize that uh, Aiden Gillen, the actor who plays Littlefinger, is playing the same character that Richard Madden is playing. It is. Oh man, it's true. That is that is really <laughs> bizarre. Uh, did you have a question, Jacob? I do. This is actually the uh, the most important question I can ask about this movie. Yeah. And it's going to sound like a joke, but it's not. How gay is it? Because I, I need this to be the gayest Hollywood biopic of all time. Um, it's very gay, and they, it actually has like it, it doesn't shy away. It, it really only has one major gay sex scene, but it's it's farther than I've seen any other big budget movie go in that regard. Uh, they they do not shy away from it, and it seems like something that um you know everybody involved with was very um. You know, they, they wanted to put their foot down and, and it's, uh, you know, I just wrote an article today talking about how uh, earlier studios in the development process wanted to remove some of the sex and drugs from the movie. And Elton John was like, I have not led a PG-13 life. You know, this is I, I wanted I didn't want it to be like overly stuffed with sex and drugs, which it's not. Um, but it really doesn't shy away from that either. So I think you'll I think you'll be OK with that. There, there's it's uh, I think it's just gay enough for you, Jacob. <laughs> Okay, I'm just, I'm just saying, Bohemian Rhapsody's portrayal of the gay lifestyle is literally 
um, Freddie Mercury going in and out of truck stop bathrooms, more or less. And it's actually this incredibly reductive viewpoint of a gay lifestyle, which is one of the reasons why the movie's total trash. So I think this movie already from the outset seems to already understand what it means to actually be a functioning uh, gay human and not Brian Singer. So yeah, yeah. fingers crossed. I think that's right. And I think I think it uh, it treats the, the character and his decision making with a level of respect that it sounds like Bohemian Rhapsody did not come close to. So, um, yeah. But anyway, speaking of, uh, of Game of Thrones, I watched Game of Thrones The Last Watch. Um, this is a documentary. It's like a, a full like two hour documentary. It's basically one long making of feature about the entire uh, making of the final season. And um, this aired on HBO on Sunday night. You can find it on HBO Go right now if you want to, or HBO Now. Um, Jacob, I, did you not? Did you watch this or no? No, I'm, I'm saving it for this week on an evening where I have a little bit less self pity. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it is fascinating. I mean, it's it, it, one of my favorite experiences was uh, watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy and then going through all of the bonus features on the Blu-rays, which there are like hours and hours and hours. There's so much stuff, and that um, those bonus features, I think, more than any other movie, have because of the size and scope of that trilogy really give you sort of a jaw-dropping idea of just how many people it it requires to make something on that scale. And uh, Game of Thrones, The Last Watch, this documentary, gave me that same feeling where it's like, good God, like this, you know, the actors are in this documentary, but it's, it's so not about them and their journeys. It's much more about the production designers and the executive producers and the people who are trying to um, deal with scheduling issues. And, you know, when uh, Ireland hit, uh, experienced a huge snowstorm that was the worst in like 30 years, right when they were supposed to be filming and how they're able to sort of, um, you know, roll with the punches and, and move on. And it's basically just a, a love letter to all of the people that you, you'll you never know their names who helped bring Game of Thrones to life. And I have uh, my issues with the way that the final season uh, wrapped up. Um, I, I think ultimately Jacob and I, you and I were, were both um, much kinder to it than a lot of <laughs> corners of the internet. But still, I, I think the, um, you know, th this documentary doesn't really get into any of that. It doesn't really get into the story as much as just the execution of it. And I think there are a ton of really, really fascinating moments in here that um, Game of Thrones fans, even those who um, despised the way that the show wrapped up, will probably be able to appreciate. Although I guess I should say, if you are like still heated about your reaction to the, the final season and still just really despised how it went down, maybe wait a little while before watching this because I think watching it will give you a greater appreciation for that. And I'm not sure that it will, um, you know, recontextualize and make you appreciate the way that the story was told. But I, I think, um, you know, having a little bit of distance might help. Um, but anyway, that's uh, it's called Game of Thrones, The Last Watch, and that's available to watch right now. Uh, really quickly, a couple more things. I watched uh, The Perfection, which is on Netflix right now. I almost... Really quickly on The Perfection? Well, yeah, because that, that's the... Really quickly? <laughs> that's the thing is I, I, I really don't want to say much about this because I know that I think, Jacob, you and I are the only people who've seen this movie so far on the podcast. I've seen it. Okay, this. Chris has seen it. Yes, okay. I've seen it. Chris, I haven't you... watched it yet. Chris, did you uh, talk about it on a previous episode of the podcast? I didn't, but I watched it uh, like a little while back, so I didn't include it over okay. this one. Um, oh, man. Yeah, I because HT, <laughs> I really want to know what HT thinks about this movie, too. Uh, I'm just going to say I went into this movie knowing nothing except that like Jacob and uh, people of Jacob's ilk, you know, uh, genre fans who, whose opinions I love and respect, uh, were raving about this movie on from the film festival circuit m several months ago. And I went in knowing that Allison Williams is in it and Logan Browning was in it. And one of them is a, mu a musical prodigy. I didn't watch the trailer. I didn't know anything else about the movie at all. And I cannot recommend that approach enough uh, for this particular movie. I feel like, um, you know, you're doing yourself a disservice. And, we, you know, this, is, this all goes back to the conversations that we've been having ad nauseum for years about spoilers and what that means and, and whether, you know, the, the right way, quote unquote, to watch a movie. For me, this was the right way to watch this movie. And I would just I wish this experience on everyone. Um, any and, and because it's on Netflix right now, pretty much everyone can have it. And I just I want everybody to watch this movie and um, and just be taken in by it because it goes to some places that I did not expect, to put it mildly. And uh, there are some incredible performances in here. The direction is fantastic. The, the story is like, 
I mean, there are some holy shit moments um, that I uh, I loved watching this movie. So I really don't want to get into like the specifics of it. Maybe we can have like a spoiler filled uh, discussion about the themes and what it means and all that. Maybe after HT has seen it, maybe we can do that as like a bonus episode of the podcast or talk about it on a day when the news is letting us down or something. Because I would love to like really get into it with you guys. But for right now, I think I do want to just leave it at that as as uh, a hard recommend from me for the perfection, which is directed by Richard Shepard and stars Allison Williams and Logan Browning and that is on Netflix right now. And then the only thing I want to add Ben yes. real quickly I'm sorry to interrupt no, you no, but no. um one thing I will say right now is that I see a lot of people people who like it and don't like it on Twitter describing it as trashy which I think is inaccurate. The only thing perfection is is incredibly South Korean. I will leave it at that. Mm, yeah. I mean I, I certainly see the that comparison and I, I I've seen That is very appealing to me, I will say. That's a good <laughs> sell, Jacob. Yes, I, I knew that was my hard sell for sell for you, HD. Yeah. You're, you're I, oh man, HD, even if you don't love this movie, I feel like you're going to have some very strong opinions about it. So I'm I'm yeah. very curious to see what you think. I will say I've seen I have a friend who really disliked the perfection for its purported feminist um angle and i'm curious as to how i will react to that because she really disliked how they approached the issues of like pertaining to like their treatment of women um in this film and i don't really know what (laughs) what that means she's talking about yeah Yeah, because i i'm trying to keep away from this movie as much as possible or like in terms of spoilers but um yeah i'm curious because i feel like i haven't heard that discussion much um, the only criticisms I've heard is like, yeah, it's trashy and it's like really like grotesque and stuff. That but, is um, fascinating because I'm yeah. sort of I find myself on the opposite end of the spectrum as your friend. I thought this was like a, a um, an explicitly feminist movie, but uh, I am certainly interested in that perspective. And and maybe I'm just like looking at it with a blind spot. So I, I would love to read some more about this if if anybody has anybody out there actually has uh, articles, um, you know, any hot takes or anything about the perfection that you guys have uh, listening out there who have seen the movie, have enjoyed reading, tweet that at me and let me know. Cause I, I'm, I want to read as much as I can about this film. Um, and then lastly, the one, one other thing that I watched was swing time, which is the 1936, uh, musical starring Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Not too long ago, I watched top hat for the first time, which uh, came out in 1935. So a year before this one. And I have to say, I loved top hat as like top hat was my ideal of what their pairing could be and swing time is um i think maybe the movie that is more beloved at least in the critical community as far as i know it's on it's on i know it's on the afi top 100 list from 2007 and uh, top hat is not um and i would 100 percent swap those two movies because mm-hmm. swing time is um i mean there's some super problematic stuff in it in terms of like uh there's a huge a dance number where Fred Astaire is in blackface and it's like extremely difficult to watch in 2019. Um, but, uh, you know, even putting that entire conversation aside, which I'm not like judging the movie, I'm trying not to judge the movie, the movie through a 2019 lens because yes, that was, you know, a regular occurrence in films back then. This was like the 1930s. So like vaudeville and all of that was still, you know, very much in full swing. Um, no pun intended, but, uh, yeah, th- anyway, it, it's, it's, uh, it's something that you sort of have to grapple with when you watch the movie and Top Hat has nothing like that. And I think the story in Swing Time is just, um, it's like farcical to a level that, uh, that stretches credulity like that, you know, um, Top Hat has like a, uh, mistaken identity sort of, uh, plot where, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers' love story is sort of tied up in one of them not understanding who the other one is. And Swing Time is much more like he is um, sort of like trying, to, he's like forcibly trying to wear her down into dating him. And it's uh, it's just a weird, um, it's a weird romance and a, a weird movie that I, uh, yes, it, of course it has like spectacular dance sequences. But um, yeah, I would just say if you're, if you're new to the uh, Rogers Astaire canon, I would maybe recommend checking out Top Hat at least first and maybe skipping Swing Time entirely. Uh, HG, I feel like I remember when I watched Top Hat, you were saying that you had seen Swing Time and you liked it more. Is that right or am I making that up? No, I don't think I said that. I, okay. I think I I um I know I agree exactly with what you're saying with in terms of Swing Time's plot. Um, it's I was it's like aggressive pursuing by Fred Astaire 
Rogers' character of Ginger Rogers, which which put me off as well. I, I will say that's kind of a common theme with all of their films. I think apart from Top Hat, uh, which was like a nice refresher. But yeah, it's um it's something if you watch a lot of their films back to back, you're like, wow, it's a lot of Fred Astaire just like being really aggressive in how he pursues her. And uh, it's, it's kind of discomforting. But I will say, um, I think the reason that Swing Time, a lot of critics book Swing Time above Top Hat is because the dance sequences and like the songs are just so good. And they are like their most iconic songs. And I do, I will say I do enjoy the musical sequences of Swing Time more. Mm-hmm. Um, Top Hat, yeah, I think Top Hat is a less like, egregious film but uh i, I just i love the, the especially the the tap dance in their like little dance studio yeah. in um yeah. in springtime that's like one of my favorite dance uh, numbers between them and uh i for that reason i, I really like springtime but yeah the, the blackface the plot really puts me off um but yeah top hat i would say like is is a better film, but um, or rather less like offensive film. Yeah, but you're time. right. The the musical numbers in Top Hat are not memorable at all. But this Swing Time has like the way you look tonight, which I had no idea was a song that originated from this movie, which is kind of amazing because that the way that song has like permeated our culture. But um, yeah, it's always crazy to to go back and think about a song that's become a standard and and see it you know in its original uh, form like that. But yeah, anyway. I will say if. If you don't want to watch like the the plot of Swing Time, uh, just watch the clips on YouTube because they are just as great in uh, standalone clips. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, all right, lastly, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, I saw Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and boy was I disappointed. Uh, it, my, I'm not gonna go too long on this because. My review just uh, went live on SlashFilm.com, and I want everyone to go read it because I need constant attention. That's why I do this job. <laughs> I will link it um, in the show notes right now, Chris. <laughs> but, yeah, I I loved the trailer for this, the one that debuted at uh, Comic-Con. It, it was so good it got me, like, emotional. I was like, holy shit, this is going to be amazing. And then I saw the movie. And it was not amazing. So I, I was, I'm very disappointed. It's not like a terrible movie, but it's, it's not good either. So Godzilla, King of the Monsters. What a way to end the podcast, guys, because I think that's all we have to talk about today. Uh, but yeah, I think, we, I think we've done pretty well for a, a shortened water cooler with two people down. So uh, we've talked about a lot of stuff. All right. So yeah, in, in the uh, articles that, that you can find in the, the show notes, we'll, be, we'll link to uh, Chris's Godzilla King of the Monsters review. And then also that, um, I think it was a vulture piece that HC mentioned, the flea bag uh, breaking the fourth wall and breaking your heart. So uh, yeah, check those out. And you can find more about those stories and everything else that we mentioned uh, and all of our other writing at SlashFilm.com, and SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and feel free to leave your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to uh, send them to peter at SlashFilm.com, and make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we will talk to you guys tomorrow. Hey, Ben. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, (laughs) go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I've opened up uh, Louis A. Safian's Darkagantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery. And just because we're down to people doesn't mean I can't utilize the greatest book of all time. So this happens (laughs) even when Peter's not hosting, huh? Yeah, I've opened up to the dumbbells section, which feels right for all of us. (laughs) All right. Are, Are you guys ready? Go ahead. Um, these ones are some of these are a little long. Like Louis A. Safi went really long on some of these. They're, they're, they're whole two lines long in the book. So um, I have not read these in advance, by the way, um, as I as I always do. Um, so pardon any stumbles. HT passing through customs. You were asked if you had any pornographic literature, and you said I haven't even got a pornograph. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Ben. Uh, you're so dumbly superstitious that you turned down a marriage proposal because you were reading The Birth of a Nation at a time. Wow. Wow. <laughs> um, Chris, he keeps looking down all the time because his doctor told him to watch his stomach. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, that's the best one of the bunch, and that's saying something. <laughs> I will say, one time at Customs, I was asked if I was 12 or under. 
three years ago. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.